people bought a ticket to watch, you know, these two competitors go after each other. And I thought of, of the few and maybe the many that had a really tough day or a week or a year. And, you know, they've spent 20, 50, 100 bucks to watch you for an hour and a half. And if I could in some, you know, shape or form change my situation around in front of all those eyeballs, and if I can look like I was the weakest one from the beginning, but I won the last point, imagine them coming home yeah, and the feeling that they'd have. You know, imagine a young girl and boy, and I could change. I had the power by being out there, by being in front of them. I had the power to change their own perspective. I'm Dan Schulman, the president and CEO of PayPal, and a longtime devotee of Krav Maga. Welcome to my podcast, Never Stand Still, where I explore some of the guiding principles I've learned in martial arts and interview world-class CEOs, creators, and changemakers about how those philosophies apply to their lives as they perform at the top of their game. Today's episode is all about how to assume a winner's stance. Sometimes just looking stronger than your opponent can determine the outcome in your favor. So how can you improve your posture in business and life to help you yield better results? How can you mentally prepare for an intimidating challenge? And how can you stay open to new opportunities to win your next big fight. Here's Kelly Campbell to explain the role of confidence in Krav Maga outcomes. Hi, I'm Kelly Campbell. I've trained within the Krav Maga worldwide system for over 20 years. I'm a fifth degree black belt and the highest ranking female instructor in the United States. We've all heard the phrase, fake it till you make it. There's some truth to that, and it applies to Krav Maga too. Most of us are scared when we get into a physical confrontation, but as long as you are not projecting fear, your opponent can't tell. Plus, isn't it funny how assuming the confident stance of a winner can trick your mind into feeling like one too? Maria Sharapova spent her career as one of the world's top women's tennis players. She's a Grand Slam champion and an Olympic medalist. And for a time, the highest paid female athlete in the world. She's also proving herself to be a savvy entrepreneur with her Sugar Pova line of confectionery. How did she develop that winner's stance in everything that she does? Well, it started at an early age and it began on the tennis court. So Maria, welcome to Never Stand Still. It is so nice to have you on the show. It is so nice to be here. I grew up playing competitive tennis I was actually number three in New Jersey when I was in my teens, and I was the uh, captain of my high school tennis team. We won the state championships, and I actually played, believe it or not, with Stan Smith and Bob Lutz and even Margaret Court uh, one time. Isn't it the most amazing sport? It truly is. I mean, besides doing it for 28 years of my life, I find... You know, so many incredible people in different fields that have said, you know, tennis has taught them so many lessons that are beyond the ball and the racket. And 
it's that that escape for them where unless you're focused and zoned in on what you're doing you're just terrible because yeah. you won't make contact you lose your focus so I, I just i found so many um connections and commonalities with people in different arenas when i talked about tennis you know because yeah. it, it made us feel like we had this one interest in common and it didn't matter what level we're at i think it brings so many people together which i love yeah i i love the game and i agree completely i I play it all the time with people from all over. It's just, it's great. You know, when I was growing up, I had all these coaches as well. Nobody like you did, but I had a lot of different coaches. And I remember them telling me that tennis at competitive levels, at least, because everybody's in physically good shape, but tennis is like 85% mental. That it's so much about attitude and confidence. And, you know, you were, a multiple Grand Slam champion, an Olympic silver medalist. You are one of the, well, you were the very top tennis player uh, in the world, not one of the very top. So like, how would you define that sort of champion's attitude and how important is that in a match? I'm so glad that the sport required 80 or 70 whatever percentage it is of, of mentality of the mind and, instead of the physicality, because I, I wouldn't be at the level I was because I, I was a much better mental athlete than I was physical ever. I was talented, you know, I, I definitely had good strokes and good forehands and, and decent power on, on my serve and, and mostly because I was so loose and, and I had, you know, tall limbs and I had that pop on my serve until I had to have shoulder surgery so that there was definitely that but a majority of my victories was because of my mind and it's hard to go back to one moment in my life or my career where I truly understood the mental game because every day was so different and I think that's what I appreciated about the sport is no matter what the circumstances were no matter how you were feeling or how good your opponent was you still had a chance and there was a reason why every single morning the nets would be coming up on the court is because you still had to go out there and, and you had to prove yourself. And I could have been in the best shape, I could have been playing the best tennis, but if my mind wasn't there, it didn't matter. I mean, there were finals and, and many matches where I didn't have a great night's sleep, um, which for me was tough because I was usually a good sleeper, but something comes on your mind, you have something going on in your personal life, or you just wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep. It's a problem. So how are you going to get through it? Not physically because you're lacking, but you're only going to get through it mentally because you can. And so for that, I was very grateful. And it's not all, you know, sometimes it is a physical match and sometimes you do have to prove yourself physically. And I had to work extremely hard and much harder than, than my competitors in the physical aspect of the game because that never came naturally to me. Isn't it interesting how your handicaps can also work to your advantage? It actually worked in Maria's favor that she had to train harder than her opponents physically since competitive tennis is primarily a mental game and developing the work ethic of an underdog helped her sharpen her mental edge from a very early age. You moved to the U.S. at a very early age. I think you were with uh, 
Nick down at his camp uh, down in uh At in six Florida. years old. At six years old. Didn't you have to like leave your family for a couple of years? You didn't see your mom for a couple of years. You talked about how important that was to you later on in your life for support. Like, how did you manage that? How did you, you know, you're away from your family. You're six years old. It's a new country as well. Yes. You're coming from Russia, coming to the US. It's a new culture. Like, what did you do to make that adjustment and to be able to handle all of that? Yeah, it's um, looking back at that that stage of my parents' life when I was a little girl, I, I, I still can't wrap my, my head around the fact that they had to make such difficult decisions. And I was I was born in Siberia. I can maybe start with the beginning of the story. Um, wow. And it's funny because when they introduced me, um, they used to introduce me at, at you know, Grand Slams, they usually never mention where you're born, but they only do that at the French Open. And I used to love that so much because the reaction of the crowd <laughs> when they when they introduced me as this is Maria Sharapova, born in Siberia, Russia, and then you just get this like what? <laughs> like they were shocked for a second. Um, and I said, I think, yeah, that's it. Really happened um, because my my both of my parents are actually from Belarus, and because of the Chernobyl explosion, and my mother was pregnant with me at the time, they moved to Siberia, so I, I was born there. And at the age of two, we moved to Sochi, a much more comfortable city in weather and lifestyle. And that's where I started playing tennis. Um, you know, my father enjoyed the sport. He wasn't very good, although he's, he thinks he is, probably still think, thinks he's a great <laughs> athlete. Um, but at the age of five, I, I went to this uh, little clinic in, in Moscow that was held by Martina Navratilova. And she told my father, we need to get out of Russia the circumstances for an athlete are much better in, in the US, particularly in Florida. And my father never looked back. He he talked to my mom who said he he was very convincing at the time and he she had, you know, a lot of trust and complete um I think loyalty and understanding of the situation and she took a huge chance and my father and I went on a went to Florida on a plane without her and we were without her for the first two years because she couldn't get a visa and that's all to say that I, in hindsight I, I think those are the years that shape your, your story and you know that that shape your your vision of the world of the people that are next to you of of the craft that you start from a young age and I was just so lucky that I did fall in love with with the sport, with hitting forehands and backhands, and and I fell in love with doing it over and over. Which I think, from a young age, and and what separated me from others was my focus and ability to keep doing it every single day. Which I think other other kids at my age that uh, they'd find other distractions or other activities or other opportunities, and and maybe because we didn't have the finance or the wealth or or just the knowledge or or I didn't have talent at other things, we pursued this one thing, and in you know our example it it worked really well. <laughs> but I also know that there are examples in which it doesn't, and I always think that the reason I mean there are many reasons it worked well, but the main reason is because we were never afraid to go back to what we had. Mm -hmm. We had a very comfortable life in Russia. We didn't have a lot of money, but we had enough to have good food on the table. Um, you know, my mother was still young. She was studying. My dad had had a decent job in construction. And ultimately, if things didn't work out in this little town in Florida, going back to Sochi to be with our family, 
didn't seem like a bad option B. Maria assumed her winner stance at the tender age of six, when she and her dad took a huge leap of faith and landed at a training camp halfway around the world from her mom. But if it didn't work, they knew going back home wouldn't be so bad because if you're a winner inside and out, you know your self-worth isn't determined on the court. Many people say, you know, the pressure must have been so immense. And of course the pressure, you know, in any sport, you're always faced with pressure. I think that's the beauty of it. It's like when you go to practice, there's not that much pressure. Like you're, you're at practice because you work, you grind, you're with your team, you're, you know, in the backcourts of, you know, a country club or a private club, whatever it is. And when you get to a stadium court, of course you're going to feel pressure, but that's, that's the feeling. I, if I didn't feel pressure, I, I, you know, I'd be worried, yeah. you know, because you have to overcome those, you know, those butterflies, those moments of uncertainty, no matter what stage you are in your life. So Having my feet on the ground, um, I think really, but because of my parents, truly, you know, because of them, helped shape my mindset. And I think yeah. that's that's really, really important. And, you know, my mom always reminded me that no matter, you know, how successful I became or how many contracts or, you know, money and people I was meeting, that it wasn't about entertainment for me. It was about the impact and improvement that I was making every single day. And she reminds me, <laughs> she reminds me of that every single day till now, so. I love that Maria's mom has always drilled the importance of making an impact. We could all use that kind of reminder. It's clear that Maria's first coaches were at home, but throughout her tennis career, she's had other amazing coaches help her hone her winning strategy, both on and off the court. What's the best piece of advice any coach ever gave you? Either that, that you still could apply to tennis, but maybe also like in your life today as well. Every coach is so different at different stage of your of your career and, and what you needed when you were a teenager in sport is, is definitely not what you need later in your life. And I think yeah. I remember one one coach said that it was it was a tough, we had a great beginning, a tough middle, and it felt like it plateaued, you know, toward the end of the relationship. But we were such great friends. I trusted him immensely. I believed him. But maybe the words that he was saying and, and the way that he was coaching me, I was almost like too comfortable. And it was really important for me to hear that maybe you need a change. Mm -hmm. Because I wanted to keep people that I am comfortable with. And what I needed at the time was actually not comfort. I needed someone to be more like tougher, you know, and I, I realized that, but it was, it's really tough to cut that cord. I think that we all face that with, with teams that we have is you kind of run out of steam, you run out of gas and you're kind of feeling like you love these people, but you're here also to work and you're here to create. And if you're not seeing um, that come to life, it becomes, uh, yeah, you, you, you plateau. And so I really appreciated when he said, this is not, you know, this is not a personal decision. You have to make a professional decision. Yeah. And I think that a lot in my business, I think that that carries over in, in the people that I work with now, you know, is what I needed when I was playing in, in the midst of my career. Is it the same team? Is it the same advice? Is it the same people that I need after? You know, it's a very interesting conversation and it's a very realistic conversation as well as, as tough as it is. 
change is one of the hardest things that people go through. Like even winning the lottery, you know, which you would think would be a very positive change. More people get divorced <laughs> after that. They lose their friends. And that's great change. You know, you would think- I wouldn't know. Have you won the lottery? No, no. <laughs> almost. Not recently. You almost, you almost <laughs> won recently, the lottery. Exactly. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, many ways. Like the life lottery, but not the lottery. And of course, when it comes to tennis, most of the game boils down to just you and your opponent. Hey, who was your most intimidating opponent, would you say, and why? I mean, Serena, by far. Um, yeah, I figured. Yeah. And when I was young, I lost to Monica Seles, like 6-0, And I actually thought I had played a really good match. And I came off the court and I, I was just like bawling because I, I I don't know if I was 16 or maybe I was 17. And I said to my dad, who was my coach at the time, I was like, I really thought I played well. <laughs> I just got completely <laughs> torn apart. But yeah, Serena is definitely the toughest competitor, the, the most challenging and most consistent in, in her level. Yeah, she's an incredible athlete. Yeah. By the way, incredible Superb. person. I mean, she's yes. a lot... Like you, the two of you are very similar, very successful business-wise, just a whole host of things beyond what you're most well-known for, which was tennis. We just saw each other at the Met in, in New York a few weeks ago, and we're discussing how how old we are now compared to the <laughs> to the US Open final. And she's like, oh my goodness, we are we are up there. And I was like, well, <laughs> you still got it, girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's funny. As one of the greats herself, Maria played against the best tennis players of our time. When you're competing on that level, it's easy to get in your head if you're not feeling your best. So how did Maria prepare for a match to ensure she could walk onto the court already feeling like a winner? I was a big fan of visualization, but not always of the positive one. I, I visualized um, like 30 minutes before a match, I, I would you know, most likely be in the locker room and trying to find a, a quiet corner. I'd close my eyes, maybe take a 10, 15 minute nap, which my team couldn't understand. They just couldn't <laughs> wrap their, their mind around the fact that I was actually sleeping. 45 minutes before going out and playing, you know, in front of 15,000 people. Um, but it was just my way of coping with the situation. I needed that little detachment from everything. And I would wake up and I would visualize each one of my strokes and, and feeling the way that my body would move and not necessarily how it would connect with the ball or the racket or the results or winners or, but I would, I would just visualize the way that my body moves so that when I was on the court, it felt natural to me. And then I figured if I do that almost every single day, particularly before matches, I would just be loose in the moments where you don't have much time to think. And so I tried to, I try to you know, take that concept because I felt like it worked for me and not everyone is the same. It's slightly different, but I do visualize if, if I have an important meeting coming up, if, if there's something in life that I'm I'm about to tackle or that's challenging, I, I close my eyes and it's kind of like meditation. I walk through my thoughts a little bit, um, but it, it's like being in your mind, but but not. It's so hard to explain. Um, I totally get it, actually. I do some of the same sort of things. I used to do that when I played sports and now... 
in business, like for instance, if I'm going to give a really big speech and I'm at a hotel and it's in a giant ballroom, like the evening before or the morning of, I'll just walk into that empty ballroom. I'll go up on stage and I'll sort of visualize this being full of people. And then when I do come in, like whenever it is hours later, it just seems familiar to me. So, I mean, I get that. I get that completely. That just reminded me of um, of a time when I was, I was just recovering from shoulder surgery and I was 21 years old and I should have been at the top of my career. I was, I just um, won my third grand slam and I thought that I was playing some of my best tennis in my career only to find out that um, I had a, a very uh, thin tangling um, tendon in my shoulder that had to be repaired a few months later. And the recovery was tough and it, it was beyond anything I'd experienced because from a young age, it was the only thing I knew was the sport. And all of a sudden you no longer have it. And, and as much as, you know, the, the doctors and all your, or your team members are optimistic, there wasn't anyone that I really knew that came back from something like that. And so I remember a year later, I was still struggling after that surgery. And it was hard to like fall back in love with the sport of the grind. And I, I chose a moment around, must have been 12 or, or 1 a.m. And I went to a public court and it was pitch dark. With, with no lights, only the street lights. And I just, you know, I, I sat there as public, so I opened the gate and I sat there on a bench for an hour. And I just, I, I had to find a way to force myself to fall in love with the sport because it was, you know, it, w without the shine and the glamor. And I just saw like the rough outline of these white lines. And I was like, this is where I belong. This is my place. And then, Gosh, I wish the shoulder would would help me a little bit and get me back into this place that I really love. And I, I always look back at that moment, you know, with just just me in the court and visualizing um, being there for years to come. Yeah, that must have been such a difficult time. I mean, going through that shoulder surgery. But you know, I, I'll bet in many ways, kind of all the matches that you played helped in some way because there had to have been some matches where you were clearly going to get beat, you know, like you were on of the them. road. <laughs> yeah. And, and somehow like in the middle of those matches and I've watched you play um, before, it just seems like mentally you turn something around hmm. and then the match turned around and you won. Like, can you maybe describe a time where sort of like that was happening and you did something in your brain to turn it around and, and you know and, and shift the outcome? I just always believed I could. I believed that within the, the two or three hours that I might be there for, you know, if it's a three set match, that I had every single opportunity and that there's so many momentum shifts and, and changes that I could take advantage of. And I always believed, no matter who was across the net, that I was mentally tougher than them. And and I think the, the other thing I thought of, especially when I was really down and out, is people bought a ticket to watch, you know, these two competitors go after each other. And I thought of, of the few and may, maybe the many that had a really tough day or a week or a year. And, you know, they've spent 20, 50, 100 bucks to watch you for an hour and a half. And if I could, in some, you know, shape or form, change my situation around in front of all those eyeballs 
And if I can look like I was the weakest one from the beginning, but I won the last point, imagine them coming home yeah. and the feeling that they'd have. You know, imagine a young girl and boy, and I could change. I had the power by being out there, by being in front of them, I had the power to change their own perspective. And so I would occasionally, although I tried to focus and, and be in the zone and always be within myself, but sometimes I needed that reminder. And that sometimes really helped me. That is so beautiful. Maria knew that by coming into her own on the court and showing her ability to turn a tough match around in front of a big stadium or on TV, she could pass on that I can get through anything mentality to her fans. Mental strength has always been seen as essential in elite sports. But the conversation is shifting in the wake of top athletes like Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles sitting out high stakes competitions to preserve their mental well-being. I think it'd be really interesting for people to hear from you because you've competed at the very elite levels. You know what that pressure is like and what can the sports industry if anything do to help maintain an athlete's mental well-being i think what i found really interesting um from the absolute sidelines without knowing you know particular situations of, of every athlete is i think we've all realized that nobody really knows what people go through in their life you know we know that an athlete steps on the court, that they're meant to go and perform, that they're meant to be a favorite, that they're meant to win, then they're meant to show up somewhere else. And it's this vicious cycle of they have to, they have to, they have to. And it's been nice to see athletes taking ownership of their career because it is their career. And their career forms into their life. It's a huge part of their life. And let's not forget that they're also incredibly young. And, yeah. you know, I, I was fortunate to have, you know, parents that kept me grounded and that gave me um, a different perspective on life, that it wasn't all about tennis. I mean, my, my father was was hardcore and, and he was, you know, he pushed me and he was tough, but he was very realistic. And my mother brought, you know, a sense of culture and and calmness and she wasn't an athlete at all by background and never really cared too much about it. She cared about the human aspect of what I was doing. But we have to remind ourselves that not everyone has that support. Not everyone has, not every athlete individual has, you know, fantastic relationships with, with parents or their siblings or, or their team or their managers. I mean, there are, there's a big force, you know, behind the scenes that if if you don't have that support, it's it's incredibly challenging. So it's nice to give them an opportunity to step back and say, I'm taking time for myself to figure my things out without being critical, without judging them and giving them the space to do so. Because once they come back, they're the top of the top. They're the best of the yeah. best but they need that time and, and let them take it. I'm, I'm fully for it. But I, I, I just hope that they do have that support because from my own experience, that was so critical. And, and, you know, when you get off the court and you've just lost, you've been defeated, but the defeat that you feel inside is, is heavy. It's really tough. Yeah. 
And if you don't have that support around you to, to lift you up, you know, as a human, not as forget about the forehands and backhands, forget about the, the mindset, just as a person, you know, to lift you up and give you that spirit to keep going. Yeah, yeah. No, it is so tough. And I actually think Naomi was incredibly courageous to talk about it and to take action on it. And I think you're exactly right. I think we should support her in that. And she'll come back. And Absolutely. she's an amazing athlete. So yeah, I have, have no doubt. In recent years, Maria's found success off the court as an entrepreneur and investor in business ventures, including her popular candy line, Sugar Bova. So how did your tennis success, you know, kind of translate into that business that you're doing now becoming such mm -hmm. a success as well? Well, I started doing well in tennis and, and winning Grand Slams at a time when it wasn't very popular to be good at many things. Like people associated you with one thing and they wanted you to swim in that lane. And if you got your feet wet and, you know, in, in other categories, they were skeptical because, which understandably so, because it's not an arena that you've performed or you've, you've practiced or you've done since you were, you know, a child. So people assumed that I was a tennis player and I should stick to being a tennis player. And that was it. And, and in some ways that bothered me, but that it bothered me because it challenged me. And I came to terms with the fact that I'm not going to be an athlete forever, that I want to be, I want to have a family. I want to be a mother. Um, and I know that my body with, you know, my height and the way that I'm built, I'm not going to withstand a very long career. And so once you come to grasp with, with a certain reality and your life goals, you establish that, okay, well, there's, there's other options. And I started pursuing those options. And, and in one way, because I was bothered by the fact that people thought that I should be swimming in one lane, but also because I was afraid that one day I wouldn't have the sport and I wouldn't have something else to do or something else to pursue, mm -hmm. or at least set a foundation to, to something new. And so business seemed, it kind of, it, it came to me in, in many ways. I think after reaching success at a young age and facing a lot of opportunities with with a very corporate world you know that that felt very distant and foreign and unapproachable from a teenage perspective i had to grow up in, in that environment and so i would i would sit in and you know very uncomfortable and, and cold environments in boardrooms and and go through contracts with my father next to me and my manager next to me and although i didn't know everything i i tried to learn and i tried to take as much information and be as curious as I could possibly be so that I could maybe in five, 10, 15 years down the line, incorporate some of this knowledge into, you know, the, the business endeavors that I come across. And I feel that I've, I didn't know it at the time because I was so naive, but I, all those lessons have, have really come into play for me. You know, I, I was one of the first few athletes that started, um, you know, taking uh, investment advisory type opportunity deals, equity deals, instead of getting straight up fees. You know, uh, first example was with Supergoop, which was a, a sunscreen um, that I think I, I invested in almost eight to 10 years ago. 
at the time with five employees. And I was just a huge admirer of, of the woman, woman, Holly Thaggart, who started the brand, who had a mission, who, you know, I showed up at, at her place and said, I want to help you because I believe in what you do. I believe in your mission and I have a, a platform and I want to share this product with the world. And now a few hundred employees later and phenomenal sales across the world, we've you know, she's helped shape the world of SPF. And that was that was my first real like, oh, I'm going to put something into this without any guarantee, without, you know, any fee. And I will travel the world and I will work with their team and, and Holly and help bring this this SPF to as many households as I can. Sometimes being in a winner's mindset, especially in the business world, just means keeping yourself open to good opportunities for you to invest in what you truly believe in. From what I've seen throughout my career, that's how you achieve the most success. Are you still playing the game? I know you retired in 2020. I've probably played like three times. (laughs) So my shoulder is hanging on on a string at the moment, um, which I should probably take care of, but I've is kind of the last thing on my mind in, in the past 18 months since retiring. But I, it's, it's interesting. I left it on, on such healthy and comfortable terms. There is like a part of me, there's like moments of it that I really miss. I, I miss the discipline and, and that repetition and, and waking up and, and putting on my sports gear and my outfit yeah. because that was like, that was my uniform and my armor. And and that's really shifted for me. And and I know it's just like a, a it's clothing and it's something that you put on. But gosh, the impact that I'd feel when I would, you know, when I'd wear the swoosh and when I I would feel like an athlete. And it's a different mindset. And so I I miss that. I still miss that in the morning. Like it's just different, you know, putting on like <laughs> keeping your pajama bottoms and <laughs> and wearing you know a nice shirt or sweater up top and getting on a Zoom call. It's it's a completely different feeling. I think we've all felt the benefit of dressing for success. When you put on your outfit that makes you feel strong, your armor, as Maria calls it, you are signaling to both yourself and the world that you are ready to perform at your best. But what about those times when you get knocked down and it's a struggle just to get back up? I wondered if Maria had any advice for navigating those low points in life when you don't feel like a winner, no matter what uniform you've got on. I'm not sure that the lesson can be applied to everyone because I think every individual has a a way of of handling tough circumstances. And I just always believe that when you're faced with adversity, when you're faced with challenges, whether it's in your professional career or whether it's in your personal life, the way that you are able to handle them today, I can guarantee you will be able to handle them much better the next time around. And they don't have to be the same exact challenges. They never are because challenges are always different. We're, you know, we face them at different stages and ages in our life. And the way I I always think that the way that I handle my challenge today will only set me up for success when I'm having to handle another set of challenges. Because my mind will always go back to how did I get up? Mm-hmm. You know, what did I do? How did I face that situation? And if I know that 
five years ago when I was faced with a, a, a big you know, challenge and I didn't get up, that will be playing on my mind. Yeah, I think that's really powerful, Maria. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I had a really good time. Thank you. One of these days. <laughs> yeah, me too. I hope one of these days we get to... We'll get to play. Yes, definitely. Yeah, that would be so much fun. Yeah. That will be fun. That'll be fun for me. Now, now I get to enjoy it. I don't see it as a chore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thanks again to Maria for a fantastic conversation. I love tennis, and it was such a joy to sit down with an icon of the game. Maria is an excellent example of having quiet confidence in whatever she's doing, business or sports. As a CEO, I can tell you, you never have enough data and information, but you still have to have the confidence to make a decision and move forward, even if everyone disagrees with you. What can you take away from this conversation? Can you put on an outfit that makes you feel like a million bucks to help you dress for success? Can you visualize winning the next big match in your life? And can you stay open to unexpected opportunities that might allow you to master a totally new game? I'm Dan Schulman. Thanks for listening to this edition of Never Stand Still, Kidak.